You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast. Each podcast, we look at what's going on in each cropping region, focusing on those pesky weeds. Welcome to another week of the Weed Smart Podcast. I've been in the office a little bit by myself while the rest of the RE and Weed Smart team have been over in Denver, Colorado at the Global Herbicide Resistance Challenge Conference. But they're all back, and I've got Peter Newman on the line. How are you, Pete? Oh, really well, Jess. I've been through my 300 emails and now I'm ready to get back into it. Perfect. And are you recovering from jet lag or you're all good? I'm actually all right. We had an exhausting trip home, but we got home and we slept in the time zone for two nights in a row, so I think I'm going to be right. But yeah, first world problem, jet lag. Yeah, that's it. It's not the worst thing in the world, I suppose. No, we'll live. And you had a good time over, because you had a holiday before you went to the Global Herbicide Conference. How did your holiday go? How did the RV go? Uh, yeah, the RV trip was amazing, Jess. I think we spoke about it on the RE podcast as well. But, um, yeah, we hired an RV in LA, drove about 2,000 miles from there to Denver, taking in some of the great national parks that they have in the US, and uh, just an amazing trip. We just saw so many different landscapes and and met some wonderful people. Actually, as soon as you open your mouth with that Australian accent, they really trip over themselves to help. It was really great. Yes, I actually love the accents from over there and we do have an interview that you did with Aaron Hager that we will play a little bit later on from the University of Illinois and editing that I really loved his accent so it's funny how we like each other's, you know, there's a bit of love for different accents, it's always a bit of fun. Absolutely, I met these guys that sounded so cool with their sort of Californian American accent and they'd they'd say, oh, you guys sound so cool, you know, I'm like, oh, come on, (laughs) you're the cool ones, we're the ones with no accent, just a bit of uh, of a convict accent. (laughs) So it's good to hear that you had a good time for your holiday, but what about the conference itself, what did you get out of the conference, Pete? Uh, yeah, well, it was a mixed bag for me. There were some really good things, and there was also some high-level science, which was molecular biology, which was a little bit above my uh, understanding, but um, but obviously pretty impressive to see the level of science going on there. But I guess one of the big things I did get is that they're not sort of desperate now. I think the management of resistant weeds has improved uh, with a, a big herbicide focus, though, and so... Um, they are spending a lot on herbicides, but we really get the feel that they're ready for harvest weed seed control. So there's quite a buzz around the harvest weed seed control symposium led by Mike Walsh, and it really seems that the Americas, so North and South America, are really ready to get into it. So that was a really positive aspect of the conference. That's exciting, and I did notice on Twitter because there was an article put up uh, out of the US on the Harrington Seed Destructor and lots of people are talking about it now on Twitter from the US and saying that they're excited about the technology. Do you think that that will translate to the paddock and the, or the field? I think so. I think they're ready to go and Judd Wheatley from De Bruin was over there touring around and meeting with different people and, and uh, Ray Harrington and Mike Walsh also toured around and they went and met with some growers and when they've toured in the past they really didn't get a great response. The growers weren't super interested but this time around they noticed a real difference in the attitude and also amongst machinery manufacturers and so on so I think it's ready to go it's going to happen and um, and I think yeah the Harrington Seed Destructor will be rolled out in the US you know in the next few years who knows exactly when but 
uh, the signs are all pretty positive, Jess. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty exciting. We touched base on the, your communications workshop that you did in the RE podcast, but just for the listeners of WeSmart, what kind of ground did you cover in your workshop that you held at the conference? We were really trying to make that suggestion that that we need to take a grassroots approach to communication. So where we work with a grower who has an idea, like Ray with his destructor, for example, uh, add some science to the idea and then share the idea with other growers and hopefully growers teaching other growers is ideal. And so that sort of grassroots farmer-driven do-with approach rather than the top-down do-for approach, if you like. And... Um, yeah, look, we got a good reception to it, but it's pretty ambitious to think you're going to turn up and, and people will just jump on board uh, on your first go. So it'll probably take uh, a few years of persistence to uh, encourage more people to take that on. But we, we got a very good reception from the people that attended our workshop. That's exciting. And I did put the feelers out there on Twitter as well. I tagged the conference in some of our tweets about our podcast. And so hopefully we do gain a few more listeners from over in the US because I think that it's such a good way to just engage everyone and and be able to share those messages on a global scale is through the podcast and hopefully people will start tuning in as well absolutely jess we got a lot of pats on the back from particularly people from the u.s about um not just ari but australia in general how we are tackling managing resistant weeds and communicating it and um, they're really getting a lot of the messages from us over there so it's a real pat on the back. Australia is a small country with a small population, less resources but we really are seen as world leaders in this field and uh, and we got some really good kudos from particularly Americans who said we have more resources and more people and more money but you guys are leading the way so uh, a real pat on the back to Australian agriculture for being leaders in the field. Yeah, all the farmers and agros out there, feel free to feel a bit chuffed about that because that's all about the community really bonding together and sharing stories and you really see that with Australian agros and farmers. But you did catch up with someone over there while you were at the conference, Aaron Hager, and it's a bit of a cool story. He's from University of Illinois. What did you find out about Aaron and his work? Well, we've reported on the work with Aaron and Pat Trannell earlier on and that's where we... uh, picked up the phrase that rotating buys your time but mixing buys your shots and and we talked about mix and rotate and we wrote an RE insight about it which was about we need herbicides to live hard, die old, a bit like Keith Richards <laughs> <laughs> rather than the uh, Jimi Hendrix approach and so I spoke to Aaron about that work and about how the importance of herbicide mixtures is as opposed to just herbicide rotation. Right, alright, well let's take a listen. We're at the Global Herbicide Resistance Conference in Denver and I'm talking to Aaron Hager. Aaron, can you just tell us a little bit about where you are from and what you do? Yeah, I'm an associate professor of weed science at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And Aaron, one of the things we featured in RE Insight a year or so ago was yours and Pat Trannell's work about the mix and rotate herbicides where you found people that had used more than one mode of action in the tank mix had a lot less resistance. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you've 
seen as a result of that work? It, it was a very interesting study because it, it became very obvious to us that we were not going to understand the evolution of glyphosate resistance in, in our amaranthus species by doing small plot work. Yeah. And so we actually uh, collaborated with a retail input supplier in the south central part of the state to do this. We contacted him and he said, well, I'm interested, what, what do you need from us? And we said, we need your records. We need to know what your farmers have been doing in their fields for as many years that you can share with them. I don't want any names. I don't need to know any names. I just need to know what you have done, what they have done for as long as you can. And so we would sample those fields. We would take the, the seed back and grow it up in the greenhouse, overspray it with glyphosate, and then determine whether or not that we had resistance in the field. Yeah. Well, that was sort of the easy part of it because for each of the fields that we sampled, which turned out to be about 101 fields, and with all the information from the retail supplier, we had like 500 site years of data, yeah. huge numbers. But we didn't want to miss anything. And so for each one of those 105 fields, we measured everything we could think of. Oh, really? We would measure the perimeter of the field. We would measure the distance to the nearest waterway, the distance to the nearest tree line, uh, everything that we could about uh, soil fertility aspects, the structure, the, the texture of the soils. Uh, basically, call it the kitchen sink approach. We didn't want to miss anything. And so in the, in the final analysis, what we learned is that the most important factor of whether or not that we found glyphosate resistance in a field was simply related to management. So in other words, what product, what herbicide had the farmer used? How often? How many times? Did he tank mix with it? Did he rotate? Etc. 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 But unfortunately, that didn't get us to the to answer the question. Well, if we found resistance there, you know, was it because of what he had done or hadn't done? In other words, was he reactive yep. or had he been more proactive? And so we went back to all the herbicide-related management factors and said, okay, is there one in here that would predict four or five years into the future whether or not resistance was there? And lo and behold, what came to the top is the fact that tank mixtures and not rotation is a better way to forestall the evolution of resistance. And we've since learned, since that paper was published with, with our amaranthus species, the reason that holds is that there's no fitness cost yeah. associated with these various resistance mechanisms that water hemp or amaranthus has. So in other words, when we have lost the effectiveness, let's say, of an ALS inhibitor, if we hadn't used an ALS inhibitor in a particular field for, let's say, 15 years, and now in 2017 we decide, well, let's try out an ALS inhibitor again. The outcome in 2017 is going to be every bit as bad as it was 15 years ago because those resistance no traits, yeah. they're still there. So with that work, Aaron, would I be right in assuming that you are a stronger advocate now of mixes over rotating herbicides from one year to the next? Typically, what we're, we're the way that we're sharing this with the farmers in the state is that we say, well, now based on what we've just shared with you, are we trying to tell you that two effective herbicides in a mixture is a better strategy to forestall the evolution of resistance than is, say, switching from a Roundup Ready variety to a Liberty Link variety, and the answer to that is yes, that's exactly what we're telling you. Now, you can certainly do the rotation if you want, but we emphasize don't let that be the only thing that you do, because in the off year, for example, when there's no fitness cost associated with this, in the year that we rotate, let's say, away from glyphosate and go to glufosinate, the frequency of glyphosate 
shape is not go down. Yeah. So now all we're doing in this off year, if the only thing that we're going to do now is glufosinate, now we're increasing the frequency of that in the off year. So I love the quote that you guys developed. I'm not sure if it was yourself or Pat, but but uh, rotating buys your time, but mixing buys your shots. Yes. And uh, and mix and rotate, I think, buys your time and shots. Would you agree? It, it does. Uh, but again, we, we really try to emphasize that, look, this is not going to prevent anything. This is simply going to forestall it. This yeah. is an evolutionary process, and our, our real goal is to hopefully encourage people to do things just beyond herbicides because we're quickly depleting when you have a five-way resistant species. I mean, you folks in Australia obviously have, have, have yeah. the experience with this. There's not just going to be the next jug that you can open and throw in the tank. We've got to think differently about managing these. And finally, what are you seeing in your area in terms of resistant weeds and the weediness of your crops? Uh, have you been through the worst of it and now things are getting better or, or are things continuing to get worse? Where are you? Uh, unfortunately, I, I think we're probably going to see things get a bit worse before they get better. Okay. Uh, we, we still have a lot of people who think that you know there, there's going to be this new chemical solution that you know at the, at the 11th hour that somebody's going to bring into the marketplace and perhaps they will. We haven't seen that yet. So your farmer's really hanging out for that that solution in a bottle? Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, it, it's, it's for us and our systems right now that, of course, being herbicides is our number one go-to tactic. Unfortunately, we've got a weed now that's pretty much figured out its way around most of the ones that used to be effective on 20 years ago. Thanks very much for your time, Aaron. Thank you. That was Pete there uh, chatting with Aaron Hager at the Global Herbicide Resistance Challenge Conference, quite a mouthful. Now, Pete, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned to me that Aaron and Pat Trannell have a really good working relationship, Pat Trannell being the researcher and Aaron Hager being the extensional communicator in the relationship there, the working relationship. How did it all come about and how do they work together so well? Oh, it's just a really good story about Aaron being on the ground and hearing from farmers and seeing things about why some people had big glyphosate resistance problems and other people didn't. And he could meet with the farmers, but he really needed that research rigour. So teaming up with Pat Trannell, they made a great team and it really just shows that strength of having that uh, that extension person on the ground and then teaming them up with a researcher and some growers and coming up with a great outcome. So Pete, did that mix and rotate message resonate with people at the conference? Yeah, that's, that was probably something I really noticed. There was a lot more talk about mixes uh, than just rotation, as we've heard in the past. So I think that message has really gotten through globally, Jess, not just from uh, Aaron and Pat's work, but just from a lot of work globally that herbicide mixes is where it's at and multiple site, multiple herbicides in a mix from different modes of action uh, rather than just rotating from one year to the next. Well, a bit of a change of pace now. So, Pete, we are all back in, on board in Australia. So we do have a, an interviewee who is from Australia. Bevan Addison is going to be featured just in a moment. Pete, could you give us a bit of background information on this article that Bevan has recently written on staggered germination of canola and how it impacts our weed management? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess in Western Australia we've had a bit of a start-stop sort of a seeding and some sort of half-wet, half-dry soils and and now some reasonable rains have just come uh, at the end of May and there are quite a few canola crops out there that have, you know, some plants that are six-leaf and some plants that are two-leaf and that can be patchy depending on soil type. And so with clethodim, 
uh, for example, and Roundup for Roundup Ready Canola, it needs to go on by around about that six leaf stage so that we don't um, see crop damage. And obviously when you have two leaf and six leaf plants in the one crop, uh, it's hard to get it 100% right. And so Bevan um, wrote an article recently and sent it around and that's how we came to get him in for the podcast, Jess. And I guess his message is that you, you can't get it 100% right in this environment, but you've just got to try and get your decisions more right than wrong, if you know what I mean. Definitely. All right, well, let's take a listen. I'm speaking with Bevan Addison. He's the Marketing Development Manager for Adama. This morning, he's made his way into the office at UWA, so thanks for finding me, Bevan. Not a problem, not a problem. Finding parking was harder than finding you. Yeah, it's always a bit of a challenge, but next week... The students are away on holiday for a little while, so after that it'll be a little bit easier. But we are going to be talking about post-emergent herbicides and applying those at the best times. It's not always the easiest of things to get right, especially with the conditions we've had in WA over the last few weeks with rainfall and different stages of emergence for canola crops in particular. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what's happening out there? Yeah, as has been happening for the last few years, we tend to be going earlier and earlier and earlier with our canola seeding. And there's been a lot of patchy emergence out there. Rainfall has been a bit hit and miss. So there's a lot of crops with either patches of the paddock well and truly emerged and six to eight leaf and the rest of it's only just poking up now or in some cases it's it's randomly along rows where one seeding run might have been a little bit deeper and got into moisture and the other ones haven't so there's a real mixed bag out there uh, and guys need to get on and spray so you've got varying stages of crop and they want to spray early but have we got the weed emergence so i think for things like ryegrass this rain over the last week is probably the the one that's going to cause the um, the main emergence. So we've got some decisions to make just to try and get the best result out of the herbicides with the safest activity on your crop. So how do you go about making the decision of when to apply the post-emergence? In a year like this, you're never going to get it right, but you've got to get it as right as you can and, and minimise the risk. Um, so the decision is really about... A combination of factors so how bad is your is your grass pressure does does that take priority or have you got systems in place with um, follow-up seed catching techniques that will uh, will allow you to leave a few grass weeds in there that you can mop up uh, in a seed set control mechanism the other thing you have to consider is is what portion of your of your crop was emerged early so if there's 10% or 15% of your crop that's up and away and is sort of getting towards a budding stage that is going to be damaged by some of these chemicals well you know maybe a 10 or 15% yield loss on 10% of the paddock is pretty acceptable if you uh, get your weed control right but if it's 50% of the paddock that may be problematic for you. So are there any other considerations people should be taking into account? that we haven't mentioned? No, that's that's the main one. And then obviously people try and mix herbicides to get the best coverage that they can. Typically in a, in a TT canola, people want to mix atrazine with their grass herbicides. And that's okay. Uh, there can be a little bit of a reduction in efficacy of, of products like clethodim. And if you are really struggling from a resistance point of view and need every bit you can get out of your clethodim, that may not be the best option for you. But if you're okay, then lots of people are doing that. 
The other consideration probably is adjuvant selection. So modified seed oils tend to give you the best kick out of out of products such as your, your Platinum, which is our version of Clethodim. There's a range of them on the market. Modified seed oils, uh, hasten, plant a crop, quicken, those type of things, they probably tend to give you the best punch. And some of the work that we've done shows anything up to about 10% improvement compared to something like a, a mineral oil, you know, your uptake, enhance, those type of things. But because they get better crop or better penetration of the herbicide, if you start to get to that bud type stage, late rosette to the budding, you may actually get a bit more damage, which you won't necessarily see until the flowers come out and you'll start to see a little bit of a, a munted flowers. Um, they don't fill properly, etc. And it's really hard to put a number on, on the, the level of damage for that. I guess the takeaway is, you know, you just need to get out there and have a really good look at your crop and make a decision based on what you're seeing, right? Yeah, and talk to your, your consultants or agronomists or advisors to, you know, if in doubt, talk to them or talk to a chemical company that whose product you've got and just try and work through it. You'll never get it perfect in a year like this. It's not even, um, you're going to have, something's going to have to give, so, so get it as good as you can. Going forward, if these conditions continue... Do you think there will be any changes in changes to the chemicals being used or any application changes over time? Or? Well, if you look at the data that's or the um, the observations that have been made, these are becoming the norm for, for WA in particular. More rain in the shoulders in, in early season and late season and typically this sort of dry spell immediately post-seeding. So there's been a step change in the last 15 years that they've they've documented and then we know that getting the canola or our canola or all our crops in early is giving us the best yield response but the problem is the the ryegrass and winter weeds are still primarily responding as they've always done so we're getting canola in if we've got early rain it's getting up and away but most of the ryegrass is not coming till a little bit later in its more traditional time Sneaky. so typically we're pushing the boundaries on crop safety and spraying right so and a lot of our pre-em herbicides are in the ground and running out of puff by the time the ryegrass comes through and that there was some good work done by david minky and wantford to show some of that sort of thing so yeah, so it's a tricky one. We're doing everything we can to create problems f for our chemicals. Definitely. And are there any other considerations or things you've noticed this season that uh, you'd like to impart some advice for agros and growers out there? Yeah, if your canola has been uh, slow coming through, and a lot of guys, their emergence is really only happening now, conditions have got pretty cool. So uh, red mite and those sort of cool season bugs could be on underway. So this year with canola, we've had generally lower seeding rates because we've been trying to spread the seed. We've had a, a haphazard start and the canola is emerging at the same time as those true winter pests. So make sure you keep an eye on them, emerging canola for insect pests as well. People tend to forget about it. If they seeded their canola three or four weeks ago, they may be thinking the problem has passed, but we've had a lot of questions around vegetable beetle, veggie weevil, balaustium mite, and things like that in the last week or so. So keep your eye on it for insects and make sure that you protect every bit of seed that you can. Because the other problem is if things fall over now and you've got products like atrazine and propizamide in the ground, canola seed is hard to come by. So reseeding canola now is not a good option or you may not be able to get seed, and reseeding cereals into a brew like that 
is problematic. Right. Good advice. Mm. Well, thank you, Bevan. Not really a problem. appreciate it. Okay, thanks. That was Bevan Addison there from Adama. Really good of him to drop into the office. He was dropping some stuff off for RE researcher Roberto Busey, but he also made the effort to find me in my little my little office here, and we had a bit of a chat. So, yeah, really appreciate him taking the time there. And he had some really interesting comments, Pete, about dealing with emergence and application of post-emergent herbicides there, and good to get the advice on pests as well, I think. Timely advice. Yeah. Well, yeah, and Bevan's been around for a long time. He was one of the first agronomists in Western Australia, actually, so he's seen plenty of crops, and so, yeah, good advice from Big Addo. He's got a really youthful, vibrant voice, though. I was imagining this younger person when I met him, like, not that he looks older or anything, but I was like, oh, wow, you know, he's got a really yeah. upbeat, an upbeat attitude, which is really nice. Yeah, I don't think he'll ever grow up. I think he's one of the best uh, <laughs> perennial young people, Bevan. Yes, and what about you, Pete? Do you have any advice you'd like to impart on agros and growers out there for the season? Probably not so much advice, but more of the observation, Jess. You know, WA, uh, I think really so many farmers are onto their weed seed bank, and so they have confidence to go seeding dry if they have to. And in Western Australia this year, it was very dry through April and May, where we had some stored moisture from probably March. Uh, so people went dry seeding because they knew that their seed bank was low enough, and it's really paid off because a lot of farmers were getting close to finishing seeding or had finished and then it just rained a few days ago and so if you were in the old system where you had a high seed bank and you were worried and you had to wait for a knockdown they'd be waiting now for another 10 days for a knockdown and then seeding well into June so really that low seed bank brings that whole seeding window forward and allows the growers to maximise productivity and you just get different seasons don't you in a fair bit of the east coast they've had a, a wonderful Anzac Day break um, through parts of New South Wales and Victoria and and they'll get a good double knock on, on a lot of their weeds but Western Australia it was that year where a lot of people kept dry seeding and, and I think it's going to pay off. Good observations there Pete so I think we'll leave it there until uh, next time we'll catch you in two weeks time. Pete thank you very much for joining me again for the Weed Smart Podcast. Good on you Jess it's going well the podcast Let's hope this one's another ripper and we get lots of listens. It's uh, good to see we're getting lots of people tuning in. So Yes, keep well it up. Done. Keep it up, people, and, and feel free to engage on Twitter as well if you've got any topics you want to see on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you too.